recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and welcome to Krista Getting Iran Talk Show. Today is Friday, March 23rd, 2012. Before I start, I have a few things to talk about. I have a list of things to talk about. Of course, I spent last week in the, um, the greater Philadelphia area, actually in the suburbs of Philadelphia in southeastern Pennsylvania. It, it's really not bad that down there, it's pretty nice outside of, um, of a couple of cities, namely um, Chester, I think it is, or, or it might be Westchester, I might be confused, is, is a battleground. And of course, Philadelphia itself is like a, a copy, of, a clone of Manhattan, practically. It, it's horrible. It, it's absolutely horrible. But, but the rest of southeastern Pennsylvania is pretty nice. The um, Valley Forge Federal Park, it, it's, you know, I wrote this, I went to Philadelphia a couple of times last spring, and I wrote this article, Philadelphia, which ran in the July Saxon Messenger, which is now available in print, by the way. And, and um, the gist of my Philadelphia article was, uh, part of it was how, History is basically being rewritten by the Jews in order to to, to facilitate a um, diverse, multicultural, polyglot, bastardized America. And, and now it, it's pretty obvious that that's also going on at um, at, at Valley Forge um, Federal Park. Well, we were looking at the monuments there, and we came across this very large monument. It was actually bigger than most of the other monuments, which commemorated the different brigades and, and um, you know, of, of volunteer soldiers from each of the various colonies and their generals and their officers, and, and a lot of names were listed. Well, well, on this one large monument, which is actually fairly new, it, it, you could tell it's only been up there a couple of years, there are no names listed. It, it's um, dedicated to the patriots of African descent. And, and quite disgracefully, I believe, it has a, a, a bronze relief of a Negro revolutionary soldier holding his, his rifle. It, it's as if, um, it, it's suddenly as if Negroes fought the Revolutionary War which is a, a total novelty in history. I mean, there may have been a couple of incidental Negroes in supporting roles here and there, but they hardly merit a monument of, of this size in, in a federal park commemorating what was essentially an all-white male war. It's dedicated in honor of patriots of African descent who served, suffered, and sacrificed during the Valley Forge encampment. I'm sure this is total news to um, everybody except for the couple of Negroes that managed politically to get this monument installed. It, it's dedicated by the Delta Sigma Theta sorority that there's another um, philosophical oxymoron. And there are no names on the monument except a quote from a Negro, a, a modern and living Negro historian who claimed that... Um, who made a, a claim that courageous black patriots participated in our nation's bitter fight for independence, which um, I think you could probably count on one hand if you were missing five fingers. 
It, it's it's incredible. History is definitely being rewritten in order to include people that should not be and and were not included in the building and and the creation of this nation and and our society and our civilization. It, it's that simple. It, it's pretty disgusting and, and also pretty. Um, repulsive to me, and, and I don't have a problem with women. I mean, women have a, a valuable role in our society in their traditional role. And, and um, what we couldn't, we men couldn't do without them, right? I mean, what women definitely, but, but at the bookstore at Valley Forge Federal Park, there, there is a, definitely a very feminine agenda and women are are being trumpeted and and um, portrayed as having a much more prominent role in society than many of them deserve. Yes, we had some prominent women in our history, but we should celebrate them based on um, facts and and truths and and what is worthy of historic merit and not artificially inflate their roles and and um it, it builds false hopes in children and it demeans and belittles the roles of of many great men which are being ignored at the expense of less significant women i, I mean let's face the facts and if you look at the bookshelves at valley forge federal park women have an incredibly prominent position and an incredibly numerous um, amount of books on, on prominent display. And, and the, the books about men are actually, um, and, and to some extent, pushed out of the way. And, and the more important books about history are, to some extent, pushed out of the way to bring many feminist-seeming or, or um, liberated woman um, themed books about women front and center, and and it well, well, it just creates a role for women in the 17 and 1800s that that would please the feminists of the 1960s and 70s. That's exactly what's going on, and it's it's um taken a role that women had in certain areas and just blown it out of proportion. And, and made them seem um, much more important in the political and, and the social arenas that, than, they, that, than many of these individual women should have been or, or actually were. It, it's really, it, it's incredible. And, and there are books like Secret Lives of the First Ladies, What Your Teachers Never Told You About the Women of the White House. Maybe we don't want to know some of those things, and, and maybe they aren't really that important. How about independent dames following the drum? Women at the Valley Forge encampment. Uh, I'm sure there were probably a few, but that they had a supporting role, and, and it's being blown out of proportion, I think, and, and the way it's prominently displayed at, at the very forefront of, of these books is, I think, it, it's, um, it borders on sickening because it's not, treating women in, in the role that they had at the time, it's rather um, inflating that their role and, and that demeans men and it demeans the role, the leadership role of, that men have in war and in politics. And, and that's where men should be.
and, and that's where that that's a Christian attitude. The um, just Jane taking liberty. Some of the the titles are quite um, are, well. They're even suggestive. Suggestive. That there was one that really um, scratched my head. It was written by a guy named Don Brown, and, and I'm being serious, right? And um, Dolly Madison Saves George Washington is the title. And this book was all over the place, copies of this book. And it turns out that what the book is about it is um, the War of 1812, and Dolly Madison allegedly rescued a portrait of George Washington from the White House that would probably have been destroyed in the fire. And all that's well and good, but the way the the um, the book is titled and the prominent position that it's given on display at Valley Forge, it, it sends a totally different signal. And, and um, it, it almost seems as if George Washington was helpless without Dolly Madison when, in fact, she only saved his picture, right? She, she only saved his portrait. And, and if that's all historians have to write about and, and, and is to... to um, inflate the role of, of women and, and write about every arcane event and, and blow its historical importance, you know, its historical, um, it, its real historical meaning out of proportion, then we're in trouble as a society. I, I mean, if we can't just tell history like it is and, and leave arcana for the trivia books, well, well then we have problems, right? And that's what we do. I mean, all this to me is reflective of the problems which we have in, in our society. The most disgusting book that I saw on display, and I have pictures of these books, and I'm going to post them hopefully one day this spring on, on Christogenia with a little commentary. The most disgusting book is Food and the Recipes of the Revolutionary War. And this is on prominent display at, at Valley Forge, at, and, and you know it's probably in bookstores and, and on the shelves in many other federal historic sites. It, it's Food and Recipes of the Revolutionary War, and it features in large, in, in a large image on its cover, two Oriental girls and, and an older Oriental woman. Like, they were around cooking for the soldiers and the people of New England and, and the South during the Revolutionary War. Uh, I guess they must have been because they're on the cover. It, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's repulsive. It, it's the, the, um, the push for diversity is, it is seriously affecting our past history as well as our present. This is incredible to me. This is just, it, it's disgusting. I would like to take the publisher who's probably some kind of Jew. I don't want to tell you what I want to do to him. Because food and recipes of the Revolutionary War should not have pictures of Chinese people prominently displayed. And they are the largest images on, on the book's cover. And, of course, it's given a... Um, a prominent spot on the shelves of this of, of this bookstore, that this gift shop at, at Valley Forge. It, it's disgusting. I could probably go on about this for another half hour, and, and um, I, I'll leave that there. That's enough. I'll probably make more comments on it at some point in the future. The um, all right, more more pertinent to our Christian identity um, 
endeavors. And I have to discuss this. There's a certain fraud that claims to be a Christian identity pastor. And he recently sent out an email. And the email says that the, um, the Christian seer of the Phoenix Code foresees a false flag. It appears to be in line with Illuminati numerology. It's worth taking a look. The Illuminati plans to detonate a nuclear bomb in Phoenix, Arizona on May 5th, 2012. And he supplies a, a link to a website, which is basically um, endtimesforecaster.blogspot.com. It's basically a futurist interpretation of prophecy, which is promoted at this website. Uh, and and um, it, it's absolutely horrible. It's Judeo-Christian all the way. That This man is no seer, the, the seer of the Phoenix Code, and, and he's certainly no prophet of God, and he should not be promoted in Christian Israel identity. And the person that sent out this email is a fraud. And, and the biggest, um, well, well, he's constantly sending out emails like this, try, trying to work on, on that, or, or feed on that culture of fear, and as I discussed presenting um, the first epistle of Peter, Christians should have no fear of what men may do to them. We have to understand that, that um, vengeance and, and our very faith are in the hands of our God, and we have to seek his will. We should certainly not fear what men may do to us. And this culture of fear that, that keeps people agitated and worried, it's detrimental to a healthy Christian mind. And, and it's detrimental to a healthy Christian life. It, it's not something that we should be caught up in. It, it is all this crap. The, the same clown was predicting um, destruction back in November, claiming that this comet Elenin was Nibiru and it was going to wreak havoc. And, and he was, um, well, well, nobody's chastising this turkey. And he claims to be two seed line Christian identity, and he's promoting all this garbage. And I don't see anybody telling him that, that he should humble himself and apologize for any of the consistently, um, the, the consistent false prophecies that this clown espouses and advertises and trumpets, and, and everybody seems to forget about it the day it passes and nothing happens. So I can't wait till May 6th or, or December 22nd of this year. Now, I'm tired of this clown, this damned idiot. It's, it's a shame that people in Christian identity are accepting this turkey. And, and I'll, 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 um, I wasn't really going to go here tonight, but, but since I've been thinking about it, and I have to get some of this off my chest, right, every once in a while. Yeah, you know, if your Christian identity pastor is teaching you Obadiah 118, and he's not quoting Obadiah 116, he's a fraud. He's a damnable fraud. I, I just love these Christian identity pastors that, that, that boast and, and glory about the demise of Esau, as foretold in Obadiah 118, but they totally refuse to admit to Obadiah 116. And, and I'm going to read Obadiah 115 and 16. For the day of Yahweh draws near on all the nations, on all the nations, as you have done it will be done unto you. Your dealings will return on your own head. 
Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, and it could be established that my holy mountain, the holy mountain of Yahweh in Scripture are the children of Israel. Mount Zion in Scripture, in prophecy, are the children of Israel. It's an allegory. Because just as you have drank on my holy mountain, and we see that all these heathen, non-Israelite, unclean nations, if, if you want to call them nations, ethnoi of society of the world, are, are feeding off of that holy mountain as we sit here and, and, and engage in this program. They're feeding off of us right now. As every unclean beast in the world is feeding off of the people of Yahweh right now. And Yahweh says, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they have never existed. And that's what's going to happen to all these parasitical non-Israelite nations who have been devouring our substance in the United States, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Europe, these past, in, in South Africa, that these past 80 to 100 years. That's exactly what's going to happen to them. They're all going to become as if they had never existed. That's the fate. That's their fate. And if your Christian identity pastor is not warning you of that, if he is, if he is not sounding that trumpet, he's a fraud. And he doesn't belong teaching Christian identity to anybody. That's the way it is. With that, we will start. And, and before I start, I, I have to say one more thing. I, I was off, um, I, I did the program on 1 Peter last week from Pennsylvania, and I was off on Saturday, and Carolyn and Rodney Martin, from everything that I've heard, Carolyn Yeager and Rodney Martin had an excellent program, and I very much appreciate their filling in for me and wish to thank them for that. So thank you. With that, we will start with 2 Peter. Here are the comments of Eusebius on 2 Peter. This is from Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 3, on the Epistles of the Apostles. And I quote, One epistle of Peter, that called the first, is acknowledged as genuine. And this the ancient elders used freely in their own writings as an undisputed work. But we have learned that this extant second epistle does not belong to the canon. Yet, as it has appeared profitable to many, it has been used with the other scriptures. The so-called Acts of Peter, however, and the gospel which bears his name, and the preaching and the apocalypse, as they are called, we know have not been universally accepted. And, and I would agree that all of those are non-canonical. They do not belong in, in Scripture. They are all forgeries. Because no ecclesiastical writer, ancient or modern, has made use of testimonies drawn from them. But in the course of my history, I shall be careful to show, in addition to the official succession, what ecclesiastical writers have from time to time made use of any of the disputed works and what they have said in regard to the canonical and accepted writings, as well as in regard to those 
which are not of this class. Now from a footnote, and, and this is taken from the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, second series, volume one, edited by Philip Schaff and Henry Wace, Buffalo, New York, Christian Literature Publishing Company, 1890. It was translated by Arthur McGifford. From a footnote in that edition of the Nicene Fathers of Eusebius's writing, we see this. Although disputed by many, as already remarked, and consequently not looked upon as certainly canonical until the end of the 4th century, the epistle, meaning to Peter, was yet used, as Eusebius says, quite widely from the time of Origen on. And then they give examples of who used this epistle. Origen, Firmilian, Cyprian, Hippolytus, Methodius, and others. That now the, the note is not very well written because Cyprian was actually 200 years before Origen, and so was Hippolytus. Cyprian and Hippolytus were both quoting from, um, from to Peter in the third century. And, and our, I'm sorry, they weren't 200 years before Origen. I would, I'm confusing Origen and Jerome, right? So, so I apologize for that. But, but the Hippolyte, Hippolytus and Cyprian certainly were very early. And, and um, I would, our origin, and he was in Alexandria, I believe, and Cyprian and Hippolytus are among the earliest Christian writers, and they're good enough for me. And, and I'll discuss that more later. So we see that Eusebius doubted the legitimacy of the second epistle of Peter. But Cyprian and Hippolytus and Origen and other Christian writers, later Christian writers, quoted from 2 Peter. Eusebius was not, in my perception, a bad man. He wrote a lot of good things which we can certainly find to be agreeable. This is my opinion of him, even in spite of the fact that his attitudes were, in many instances, very Roman Catholic, before there were any Roman Catholics as we know them. And therefore, to me, I, I consider Eusebius to be a proto-Catholic. He, he's a proto-Roman Catholic, right? In the later and perverted sense of the word. I would not necessarily expect all of the earliest Christian writers to even know of an epistle which Peter had only written to a few of the, the assemblies of Anatolia. And I imagine that it may well have taken some time for that epistle to get around. Irenaeus was in Gaul he, he very, in, in the second century, in circa 180, I believe, AD. He very, very well may have never heard or, or seen the epistle. I'm not sure, but, but it's possible, it's very possible that this epistle could have taken over a hundred years to get around the Mediterranean, or better. Now, especially since Eusebius claimed only that we have learned that this extant second epistle does not belong to the canon, yet Eusebius does not ever state how such a thing had actually been learned. Therefore, his statement as far as I'm concerned, amounts to hearsay. 
against those writers who were earlier than he was, namely Origen, Cyprian, and Hippolytus, who did accept the epistle as genuine. There are further allusions to this epistle, so it seems, in the writings of Clement and Justin, but we have three witnesses before the time of Eusebius who did accept the epistle. As it was explained when I discussed the first epistle of Peter here some weeks ago, the language of that first letter is considered to be the highly polished work of an educated man. The language of the second epistle is often quite rough and not very eloquent at all. The differences are easily accounted if it is understood that one Peter, which is more or less a formal treatise, was probably related by Peter and written by Silvanus, which is evident in 1 Peter 5.12 where it says, by Silvanus, the faithful brother, as I reckon I have written to you. And to Peter, was more of an informal letter that Peter may have written himself since no one else is mentioned as being its author. Both epistles are written to the same audience. As it is mentioned in 2 Peter 3.1 where it says that this is now, beloved, the second letter I write to you. Therefore, that Silvanus was not mentioned in this epistle is further evidence that Peter wrote it himself, Sylvanus not being present. There was also a mention in the writings of Clement that someone named Glaucius was the interpreter of Peter. However, there is no evidence that, could, that that could apply here for this second epistle. What we can't just assume, oh, okay, so Glaucius wrote the second epistle. There's no evidence to that, so I will dismiss that for, for, for what remains to be discussed. The greetings at the beginning of both the first and second epistles of Peter are very similar, where it says in each, favor to you and peace be multiplied. Paul and Jude actually also use similar greetings. The vocabulary of the two epistles, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, also, I believe, supports the argument for a single author, but different writers. In the first epistle, Peter is only Petros, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is seemingly consistent with an address that was probably bought, written by the Greek Silvanus. In the second epistle, he is Sumian Petros, reflecting his own Hebrew background by the use of the name Sumian. Sumian, or Simeon as we know the patriarch from the Old Testament, is the common Hebrew form of the name Simon, which is the Greek form of that name. And with his use, and Simon is a name that, that that, that I've seen in Greek dating back to the time of Homer, I believe. And with his use of his own name, Peter using his own name, Sumian, along with the name Petrus, which he was given by Christ, he betrays himself as the author. A and I have a, a, um, a theory for that. In the book of Acts and in the Gospels, he is known as Simon Petrus, Peter, or Simon Peter. 
Simon Petrus. And the Greek form of the name is always used according to the Moulton Geddon concordance to the Greek Testament. The Hebrew name Simeon appears several times in Luke and Acts to refer to other men, not to Simon Peter. And one time it's used in the Revelation to refer to the patriarchal tribe, the tribe of Simeon in Revelation chapter 7. But it never, the name, the Hebrew form of the name Simeon never appears in Scripture of Simon Peter, except here in this epistle to Peter in this, in this one place. I can say with confidence, I can say that, because using the Moulton Geddon concordance to the Greek Testament, what, which is basically a listing arranged just like a Strong's concordance, of all the Greek words that appear in, in the New Testament, in a manner in which we see the English words of Strong's Concordance. Yet you can look up a single word in Greek and see every place it appears in the New Testament. So, so using the Moulton Geddon Concordance, I examined the text of the NA27, the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, which is the Greek text that I use, which has all the, the variations of all the major manuscripts, and, and, and it lists them all. And there is not a single instance in any of the New Testament books of the name Simon being written in the Hebrew form Sumian anywhere that it applies to Peter except here in this one epistle in 2 Peter, chapter 1. This, I believe, is strong evidence for accepting this epistle as having been written by Peter, since it is highly unlikely that any forger would change the form of his name to a form which the Gospels themselves never used and which Peter or his writer, Silvanus, did not use in the first epistle. But Peter himself using the Hebrew form of his name indicates to us that he certainly is the author of this epistle. From a language viewpoint, there are, by some counts, 100 common words between the two epistles, but nearly 600 words which are only found in one of them and not in the other. That is not an abnormal ratio for two different letters. While there are many synonyms found in one epistle and not the other, and, and I'll give a short list, athematos and athesmos, which both mean lawless, and, and one form is found in one Peter and another form is found in two Peter. Logizomahi and hegiomahi, what which can mean to think or consider. Martis and epoptes, which mean a witness, and, and their synonyms, hupogramos and hupodigma, which both can mean an example or model, and poius and potapus, which both can mean as a question, more or less, of what kind or of what sort. And even though we have the, these five or six examples of words which are synonyms, and one synonym appears in one epistle and the other synonym appears 
in, in the other epistle, these are easily accounted for. These differences are easily accounted for once we understand that a different writer penned the first epistle for Peter and must have preferred different words to represent these ideas. While coin, as it's called, or common Greek, which is what it means, was the universal language of the period, it is clear in a study of the period's literature that there were dialects even of Koine Greek, which is common Greek, right? There were dialects of Koine Greek, and, and that's not really understood by many. And, and that could be demonstrated. It could be demonstrated that the Koine Greek of the Eastern, that, that in Koine Greek, the Eastern speakers actually did prefer different words and styles than those of the West. And Westcott and Hort in the 18th century, right, 19th century, they attempted to classify biblical manuscripts according to differences in regional dialects. Syrian, Alexandrian, Western, and neutral being the categories that they assigned according to the many minor differences among the ancient New Testament manuscripts. And, and it's very clear in, in um, well, when you compare, say, the Codex Bezai, what which is considered to be a Western manuscript by Westcott and Hort, and, and when you compare the Codex Bezai to the Codex Alexandrinus, to the Codex, um, the Codex Sinaiticus, or the Codex Vaticanus, which, which are both neutral, according to Westcott and Hort, you can see many differences in words where a synonym, which was more popular than the word used in the East, was replaced or replaced an, an Eastern word in the manuscripts. And even though the, um, the word has the same meaning and it doesn't really change the meaning of the text, that happened frequently in the Codex Bazai. So, so this is not uncommon, that there were different... And, and Sylvanus being a Greek from Greece, and Peter speaking Greek in, in Judea as a second language, it's very possible that they had a different... that they had different vocabularies. So when Sylvanus wrote down Peter's ideas in 1 Peter, he reworded them more or less in the Greek of Greece, where he came from, and, and the people that um, Peter was writing to in the assemblies of Anatolia were native Greek speakers. And there is nothing abnormal about that. That accounts for all of these differences in, in vocabulary between 1 and 2 Peter. I'm sure it could be studied at a deeper level. The authorship of 2 Peter is also disputed because there are different but nearly synonymous phrases used from one epistle to the other, and aside from these, the, this handful of words. These, notably, these are notably the phrases from the foundation of the society, which is, appears in 1 Peter 1.20, where in 2 Peter 3.4 we see instead from the beginning of creation. And there are skeptics, critics of 2 Peter, who like to point this out. What they miss is that the Revelation itself also used both 
of these exact terms. We see one term at Revelation 3.14, and we see the other term at Revelation 13.8 and at Revelation 17.8 from the beginning of from the foundation of the society and from the beginning of the creation. The Revelation uses both terms, and nobody asserts that the writer of the end of the Revelation was a different writer than the writer of the beginning of the Revelation. That's ridiculous. So, so that argument just falls apart. There's no proof that 2 Peter was not written by Peter based on linguistic term, terms. It's also pointed out that, that in, in one place, Peter uses the term, the previous desires, at, at 1 Peter 1.14. But then in his second epistle, he uses the term, the former sins, in 2 Peter 1.9. As if that, that sh- and, and it is argued that that proves some sort of theological difference between the two writers. But it doesn't prove anything, because Paul makes similar phrases. Paul in his epistle said, we also had all at one time conducted ourselves in the desires of our flesh, Ephesians 2.3. Paul in his epistle says, that which concerns the former mode of life, the old man which is perishing in accordance with the desires of deceit. These terms are very similar to Peter's use of the term previous desires as allegorical synonym for sin. And therefore, this argument of the critics of 2 Peter is also absolutely invalid because Paul used the same terms in his epistles. The term is not even understood by universalist commentators because biblically, the, the, the term previous desires only applies to the children of Israel who turned from Yahweh their God to idolatry. Some letters claim that these epistles, that in these epistles, and I will quote, a significant divergence in theological vocabulary occurs with respect of the coming of Christ. And they write that because in 1 Peter, the word used to describe the second coming of Christ is apocalypsis, which means revelation in 1 Peter 1, 7, 1, 13, and 4.13. But in 2 Peter, the word used to describe the second coming of Christ is parousia, or presence, at 1.16, and 3.12. So they claim that 1 and 2 Peter had to have different authors. It is foolishly argued in reference to Peter that an author would demonstrate consistency of theological terminology from one letter to the next, to represent this idea. And what these fools overlook is the fact that Paul used parousia, the presence of Christ, at least half a dozen times to refer to the coming of Christ in his letters. And James used it twice. And John used it once in his epistles, the word parousia to describe the second coming of Christ, to refer to that same thing. Yet Paul also used apocalypsis or revelation at least four times to describe the second coming of Christ. And John wrote the book that bears that very name. So this argument is also absolutely invalid. 
lest we be led to believe that there were also different authors of the works of John or of Paul. So, so all of the critics, all, all of the criticisms of two Peter, upon honest inspection, fall apart. They just fall apart. But there's more to the grammar story of, of 1 and 2 Peter than this. As it has been noted, 1 and 2 Peter have 100 words in common with each other. And more significant than the differences between the letters, there are several words and phrases which are used in 1 and 2 Peter that either occur only in these two letters or are relatively rare elsewhere in the New Testament. Among these are the word arete, which means virtue, and arete only appears in 2 Peter 1.3 and 1.5 and 1 Peter 2.9, except that Paul used it elsewhere on one occasion in Philippians, I believe. Paul used it once. So other than Paul's one use of the word, it only appears in 1 and 2 Peter. The word anastrophe used in the context of meaning conduct is used very often in 1 and 2 Peter. Paul and James both used the term, but Peter used it most frequently in both his epistles. Anastrephomahi, which is to conduct as a verb, appears in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, and Paul also used the term in that sense. More importantly, the phrase aspilus kahi amomus, or amometus, which means blameless and spotless, using these words, that term only appears in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, and nowhere else in the New Testament. So in the Bible, the phrase in Greek is peculiar to Peter. The word apothesis, which means a putting off, and Paul uses other words which mean putting off. However, Peter uses apothesis as putting off, and only Peter uses it, and it appears in both of the epistles of Peter. The, ver the, 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 the noun epoptes and its corresponding verb, epoptuo, which means a, a witness and to be a witness, and it specifically means an eyewitness, right? Usually, as the word witness in all the other New Testament books is the word martyrus, which we know to be, which we know is martyr, right? Well, well the word martyr is used everywhere else, but only Peter used these words, apoptes and epoptuo, in the New Testament to describe an eyewitness. Only Peter used them, and they appear in both of these epistles. There are other words, asterictus, which means unstable, and, and its, its antonym, sterigmus, which means support, and both of these words are only used by Peter in the New Testament. The idea of ceasing from sin and, and, and a use of a verb which means to stop or to cease, which is pao and, and pepetahi, pep, I'm sorry, this is a hard one, right? 
Pepatahi Hamardius means he has ceased from sin, and its antonym, and, and which is Akatapastis Hamardius, never ceasing from sin, this idea is only used with these words in the epistles of Peter, and they appear in both 1 and 2 Peter. So, so there's a lot of common language which is used in both of the epistles of Peter, which is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The, um, the, the word asogaya for indecency is used um, by, only by Peter and Paul, and it's used once in Mark, and we know that Mark's account is Peter's account. The, the word growth is a metaphor for spiritual progress. It was only used by Peter. It was used in both epistles, and it was used by Paul. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament it, as the verb oxanine, to grow used of spiritual progress. Only Peter and Paul use it. Peter uses it in both of these epistles. So, so there's a lot of common language that because it doesn't, this language does not appear elsewhere in the New Testament, that's a stronger argument that Peter indeed wrote both of these epistles because there's language common to both of these epistles which does not appear elsewhere. So I believe that there are several strong arguments that Peter indeed wrote to Peter, and he wrote one Peter, except that Sylvanus was the scribe who actually wrote the letter. The letter reflects Peter's theological thinking, Peter's ideas, and it is truly Peter's epistle. 1 Peter, chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Petrus, servant and ambassador of Yahshua Christ, to those who have obtained by faith, and those words are important, with us an equally valued faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yahshua Christ. The Hebrew form of the name is used here, rather than the Greek. In 1 Peter, he was simply Petrus. While in the Acts and in the Gospels, he is Simon, or Petrus, or Simon Petrus. This is the only place that he is Simeon, and I'm reinforcing my argument here, right? This shows that not only a Hebrew wrote this epistle, but it most likely had to be Peter himself, since this form of the name was never used to Peter anywhere else. In other words, a forger would not, not dare change the name if he, if he was forging this epistle and expected it to be accepted. He would simply use the form of the name that appears everywhere else in the Gospels and, and epistles of Peter and the, the epistles of Paul, which were definitely in writing at this time where Paul spoke of Peter. 
And 2 Peter chapter 3 proved to us that they were in writing at this time and known to the writer of this epistle. So this certainly had to be Peter himself who wrote this, since this form of the name was not used of him anywhere else. Silvanus wrote his first epistle for him, so he was Simon. Peter himself wrote this second epistle, and Peter himself could state that he was Simeon, the Hebrew form of his name. Peter writes his epistle to those who have obtained by faith an equally valued faith. The verb, and, and the words by faith are missing in the King James, but I put them in because they had to be emphasized. The verb is Strong's number 2975. It's lagcano. Lagcano is, according to Liddell and Scott, to obtain by lot, by fate, or by the will of the gods, a pagan Greek definition, right? There are many ways in Greek to say the verb, to, the word obtain. But here Peter uses a specific word, which indicates that this obtaining was by the will of God. Since the decrees of Yahweh are spelled out in the Old Testament prophets and nowhere else, and since the Old Testament prophets tell us that this obtaining of this faith is only for the children of Israel, both the dispersed and the still circumcised, we certainly cannot assume that Peter was including anyone else in his message here. While back in Acts chapter 10, Peter evidently did not understand this, he surely shows an understanding of this here when this epistle was written about 30 years later. The words are reminiscent of Peter's statement as they are recorded in Acts 11.17, where he says of those of the household of Cornelius, and I quote, Therefore, as Yahweh gave to them the same gift as also to us, believing upon the Prince Yahshua Christ, am I anyone who was able to prevent Yahweh? This first verse shows once again, as it was evidenced in Peter's first epistle, that the intended audience is not those of the circumcision, but instead it was those of the nations, those of the earlier dispersions of Israel, who had long been the so-called uncircumcision. This letter was not written to Jews. It was not written to Judeans. Peter's language, where he says, to those who have obtained by faith with us, meaning with the circumcised Hebrews, an equally valued faith, that proves that these first and second epistles of Peter are written to the uncircumcised, not to the circumcised. Most Bible commentators will say, oh, these epistles were written to Christian Jews. That is a lie. They were written to dispersed Israelites, but these dispersed Israelites were never Jews. They were never Judeans. They've always, they for seven centuries, been Greeks and Celts. They are the inhabitants of the places that Peter wrote to and the assemblies which he addressed. Favor to you, and, and, and that we've seen that several times when we discussed 1 Peter, 
that Peter, there's much proof, especially in his quotes from Hosea, where he had to be addressing not Judeans, but dispersed Israelites of the dispersions of, of the Assyrian period and before time. The proof of that is in Peter's quotes in Hosea, and, and uh, I'm sorry, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, which came from the prophecy of Hosea. Verse 2, say what to you, and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of our God and Prince Yahshua. The phrase rendered our God and Savior, Yahshua Christ, in, in, in the first verse, and this phrase here, rendered our God and Prince Yahshua. Both of these phrases are or I should say each of these phrases, are a grammatical construction in Greek which is called a hendiotis. A hendiotis, hendiotis is a Greek word, or it's a word formed from Greek, which basically means one by means of two, hen, dia, and dus, three words. One through two, or one by means of two. A hendiatus is a grammatical construction that indicates that two nouns, which in this case are God and Prince, right? Or, or God and Lord. Two nouns purposely refer to a single entity. Peter here, by using the hendiatus, is declaring in the grammar, in the Greek grammar, and this meaning is lost in many of the English translations, and that's sad. Peter is declaring that Yahshua Christ is his God. The phrase may have been rendered of our God, even Prince, or even Yahshua, our Prince, in, in the first verse. The Codices, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus both had the word Christ accompanying the name Yahshua here in verse 2, but they do not disturb the grammar. They do not disturb the grammatical construction, which is a, a hendiatus, which insists that both God and Lord, or God and Prince, refer to the same Yahshua. Verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things which are for life and piety through the knowledge of he who has called us into his own honor and virtue, by which he has given to us precious and very great promises, in order that through these you would be partakers of the divine nature, fleeing from the corruption in society and lust. This does not, of course, assert that these promises are new with Christ. Rather, these promises have always been offered to our race. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, Therefore I say, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. The promises aren't new. It's the same Old Testament promises that Peter's talking about. And the nations, for the sake of mercy, honor Yahweh just as it is written. For this reason, I will profess you among the nations, and I will sing of your name. And again it says, and I'm still quoting Paul, Rejoice, nations, with his people. And again, praise Yahweh, all the nations, and commend him, all the people. 
And again, Isaiah says, there shall be the root of Jesse, and he is arising to be ruler of the nations. Upon him the nations have expectation. Well, only the nations of the children of Israel ever had that expectation, or hope, as it's translated in the King James. And Paul, in Romans chapter 4, defines the faith of Abraham in that very manner. Here, Peter mentions honor and virtue in connection with the calling of God. Paul used that word for virtue once in Philippians 4.18. The only other place this Greek word for virtue, for virtue, which is arete, appears in the New Testament is in verse 5, here in this chapter of Peter, of 2 Peter, and in 1 Peter 2.9. In 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter uses the same word, virtue, he says, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. All references to the children of Israel. Peter here is addressing the dispersed children of Israel. So that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. To be partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says here in verse 4. This passage supports and is supported by, and, and I, I elucidated this here several weeks ago in a presentation I did entitled Translating John 1, 11 through 13. This passage supports and is supported by my own understanding of John 1, 12, as I have translated it where it says of Christ, and which is legitimate Greek grammar, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority, which the children of Yahweh are to attain, which is our Christian expectation, to be partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And for the same thing also, besides applying all earnestness, you provide virtue in addition to your faith, and with the virtue, knowledge, and with the knowledge, self-control, and with the self-control, endurance, and with the endurance, piety, and with the piety, brotherly love, and with the brotherly love, charity. And the progression there is important. It's important to notice that charity comes after brotherly love. Because when you have charity towards people that aren't your brother, that's not brotherly love. That's brotherly hate. That's hatred of your brother. If you want to share the blessings which God gave you with the enemies of God, with the Jews, with the Kathirs, with the other Mansers and Mongols of the, of, of the world, that's brotherly hate. We need brotherly love, and then we need charity towards our brethren. These are all things which Paul also taught. For instance, in Hebrews 10, 23, and 24, where we wrote that we should hold fast the profession of the expectation or the hope without wavering, for he making the promise is trustworthy. And we should consider one another, Paul addressing Hebrews, not Kathirs, not Negroes, in regard to stimulation of love and of good deeds. The love comes first, then come the good deeds in Paul's 
epistle to the Hebrews. Here in Peter, the love comes first, and then comes the charity. Brotherly love, as Peter says here, should be followed by, should come with, charity. Paul placed love with good deeds, which would describe those things which we do for our brethren. James said in chapter 2 of his epistle, What is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith but does not have works? Is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking daily food, and one from among you should say to them, Go in peace, be warm and fed, but you would not give to them the provisions for the body, what is the benefit? So we need the love and then the charity, or our faith is dead. Thus we also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. And Paul taught the same thing using different language. Paul placed love with good deeds. Peter here is placing brotherly love before charity, because charity is the fulfillment of the expression of that brotherly love. Verse 8, for these things belonging to you and abounding are set down. For the knowledge of our Prince Yahshua Christ, never to be idle or fruitless, faith without works is dead. If we do not have these things, then any claim we may make to know Christ is a false one. Verse 9, indeed, and he whom these things are not present, he is blind, being short-sighted, possessing a forgetfulness of the cleansing of his old errors or sins. One of the consequences of disobedience, Deuteronomy 28:28, Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Verse 10, on which account still more, brethren, you be earnest to make your calling and election firm. Note those words, your calling and election. Peter can only be talking to Israelites. For doing these things, you shall by no means fail at any time. Love your brother, take care of him, and there's nothing, look out for him, and there's nothing you could screw up. Isaiah 45, 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. These things are never promised or spoken for anyone but the literal children of Israel. At 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Peter quotes Hosea in a reference to the dispersed ancient Israelites, which shows that his intended audience in these letters are indeed those very People, your calling and election. Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee. This message in 2 Peter is in several ways very much like Paul's epistle to the Hebrews at chapter 10. And I would like to read from verse 14, where it says, With one offering he has perfected for perpetuity those being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, thereafter, having said, This is the covenant which I will devise for them after those days, says Yahweh. 
giving my laws upon their hearts, I will also inscribe them upon their minds and their errors or their sins and lawlessness. I will not at all remember hereafter. Now where there is a discharge of these things, no longer is there an offering for wrongdoing. Therefore, brethren, having liberty into the entrance of the holy places in the blood of Yahshua, by a new and living way, through the veil which he has consecrated for us, that is, of his flesh, and the great priest over the household of Yahweh, we should approach with a true heart in certainty of faith, having purified the hearts from a wicked conscience and having washed the body in pure water, the pure water of the word, we should hold fast the profession of the expectation without wavering, for he making the promise is trustworthy. And we should consider one another in regard to stimulation of love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, as is a habit with some, but encouraging, and by so much more as you see the day approaching. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. For thus, for thusly, shall there be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Prince and Savior, Yahshua Christ. The only way that the kingdom of God can be established on earth is that the people of God on earth choose obedience over sin. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 Those of us who choose obedience now send our sins ahead to the judgment, as Paul explains in his epistles to Timothy. Upon doing that, we pray that we do not suffer trial in the flesh. Those of us who do not cease from sin can expect to suffer trial in the flesh. All Israel shall be saved, However, many of us shall be tried again and again because of our sin. Yahweh chastises those whom he loves and seeks to correct them. Therefore, we should expect a trial, especially when we're walking in error. On which account, I am always going to remind you concerning these things, even though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter is not telling these people anything that they have not already learned. Therefore, Peter is writing with the purpose of fortifying what these people have already learned from others, as this verse reveals. This supports my assertion that Peter wrote both of these epistles to those very assemblies in Anatolia, which Paul had already founded earlier in his ministry and his testimony of Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3 supports that assertion. Verse 13, now I deem it righteous for as long as I am in this tabernacle to arouse you by reminder, knowing that soon as the putting aside of my tabernacle, just as also our Prince Yahshua Christ has shown me, and I shall also be diligent that on every occasion you have a mention to do these things 
after my departure, which indicates that Paul is not there any longer. And I'll probably discuss that when we get to chapter 3. This tabernacle is this fleshly body, which is the true temple of the Spirit of God, as both Yahshua Christ and Paul also often taught. Here we see that Peter believed his own death to be imminent at the time of his writing. There was a strong tradition in the early Christian writings that Peter was in Rome and died there. Some of those writings go so far as to say that Peter, together with Paul, founded the, the, the so-called church or assembly in the singular, which was at Rome. And that tradition is very old. Yet, in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, it is quite clear that there was not one church in Rome, but rather there were churches, assemblies, in the plural, and they were at Rome long before Paul ever visited the city. That those assemblies contained people both of the circumcision and of the uncircumcision is evident in Paul's epistle. And there is no mention of Peter's being there or having ever been there at all. When Peter was in Rome, whether Peter was in Rome later and whether Peter was actually in Rome when he was martyred is immaterial. In Peter's first epistle, in the closing remarks, he indicates that he was at Babylon, which is consistent with his mission to the circumcision. And there'll be more about that later. And in fact, when Paul arrived at Rome, many of the circumcision, the prominent Judeans of the city, came out to see him, as if they had not yet heard the gospel from an apostle, but had only heard the many negative things which were being spread concerning Christianity. This is readily evident in Acts chapter 28 which I will quote from verse 17. And it came to pass that after three days there were summoned to him those who were leaders of the Judeans. And upon their gathering he said to them, I, brother men, or brethren, doing nothing against the people or the customs of the fathers, have been delivered a captive from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, of course this is Paul speaking, who examining me wished to release me because of there not being any guilt of death in me. But upon the Judeans speaking in opposition, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not as if having anything to accuse my nation of, therefore for this reason I have summoned you, to see and to speak with you, for because of the hope of Israel I am wrapped in this chain. But they said to him, meaning the Judeans of the city of Rome, but they said to him, we have not received letters from the Judeans concerning you, nor have any of the brethren arriving reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we think it worthy to hear from you the things which you think, since concerning this sect, 
it is meaning the Christians, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And arranging the day with him, many came into the lodging to him, to whom he, affirming, exhibited the kingdom of Yahweh, and persuading them concerning Yahshua, both from the law of Moses and the prophets from early until evening. And indeed, some were persuaded by the things being spoken, and some did not believe. And not being in agreement with each other, they were released upon Paul speaking one word, that, well, did the Holy Spirit speak through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, you must go to this people and say, hearing you shall hear, and should by no means understand. And looking, you shall look and should not, by no means see. For the hearts of this people had grown fat, and with the ears they hear with difficulty, and their eyes have closed, that at no time should they see with, see with the eyes and hear with the ears, and understand in their hearts that they should repent, and I shall heal them. Therefore it must be known by you that to the nations is this salvation of Yahweh sent, and they shall listen. And he abode for two whole years in his own hired house and received all those coming into him, proclaiming the kingdom of Yahweh and teaching the things concerning Prince Yahshua Christ with all free spokenness unhindered. Acts chapter 28. The fact that there is no mention of Peter here, and that Paul wrote to assemblies, plural, and not to a single great assembly, leads me to distrust the testimonies of the early Christian writers as we have them today, and that's important, as being too supportive of some of the misgivings of the later Roman Catholic Church. Many of those early Christian writings did not come into existence for several centuries after Peter's death. And the tradition that Peter and Paul founded the Roman, quote-unquote, church, was obviously an early one, already extant in the time of Eusebius, who wrote around 330 A.D. But that does not mean that it was true. The editors of the volumes of the Ante-Nicene Ante Fathers, translations of the writings of the fathers down to A.D. 325 state that the Roman imprisonment and martyrdom of St. Peter seem historical, and that is possible. But it still does not prove that Peter founded the Roman church, something for which there is no authentic evidence at all, and which the book of Acts and the epistle of Paul to the Romans surely seem to refute. It makes sense that Peter was in Rome it makes more sense that Peter was in, in Rome later. I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself. It makes more sense that Peter was in Rome later, if at all. Since the Gospel of Mark contains some Latin words, and therefore it may have been written for a Greek-speaking Roman audience, and we know from many testimonies that it was Peter's testimonies which Mark recorded in his Gospel. The earlier Clement if indeed the citations are accepted as being original, there's a lot of pseudo-Clementine writing. The earlier Clement has Peter preaching and martyred in Rome. The later Irenaeus has Peter and Paul 
laying the foundations of the church there. And as early as Eusebius, the claim is made that Peter and Paul founded the church, the church in the singular, in Rome. Therefore, it seems to me that the Catholic tradition developed over the centuries, but it was not at all original. Again, the editors of the Ante Nicene Fathers also demonstrate that there were indeed some Roman Catholic interpolations of the 9th century identified in the works of Cyprian, where his writing seems to support later Romish church doctrines. Those interpolations are found to be fraudulent through a comparison of older manuscripts. Those who protest these assessments claim that Peter could not have been in Babylon, since Babylon was desolate at the time of the apostles. They then claim that in Peter's epistles, Babylon is a code word for Rome. Yet many of these voices, these same voices, supporters of Catholicism, would then deny that the mention of mystery Babylon in the Revelation has anything at all to do with the Catholic Church. In truth, the city Babylon was indeed in a state of decay as early as the 2nd century B.C., that's well known, about 140 B.C., when the Parthians came to take it over. And much of the formerly great city did lay desolate. However, it was not completely uninhabited. And additionally, the name Babylon may refer to the district and towns around the city as well as to the ancient city itself. Later in history, Mani, M-A-N-I. Manny, who was born circa 210 A.D. and who was the founder of the heresy known as Manich, Manichaeism, Manny was a resident of Babylon. Later than that in history, both the Mishnah and the Gemara, the primary components of the Babylonian Talmud, were completed in writing at Babylon between 200 and 500 A.D. The Jewish communities, and by Jewish I mean Jewish, the Jewish communities of northern Africa and the Mediterranean are recorded as sending to Babylon to their rabbis where there were schools, rabbinical schools in Babylon, well into the 6th century A.D. I believe that's recorded in Maurice Pinot's book, the, the, fight against, the Secret Fight Against the Church. I, I can't think of the title or at all. Also seeming, and, and before I say that, let me say that it, it's evident in the Acts where the Judeans tell Peter, I'm sorry, where the Judeans tell Paul we have not received letters from the Judeans concerning you, nor the Judeans in Rome, right? From the Judeans concerning you, nor have any of the brethren arriving reported or spoken anything bad about you. And this is important. But we think it worthy to hear from you the things which you think. Since concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So it's obvious, and Paul arrived in Rome probably around 61 A.D., and, and I'll hit on the chronology again in a few minutes. 
it's very obvious that the Judeans in Rome, the prominent Judeans of the city, those still practicing the religion of Judea, Judaism, they were not Christians, and, and that's evident in Acts chapter 28, right? That they had not yet heard anything specific about Christianity from a Christian apostle. They were looking to hear it from Paul because all they had heard, as we see in Acts chapter 28, are the bad things that were being spread about Christianity. And for that reason, they wanted to speak to Paul. And that's the profession right here in Acts chapter 28. So it's highly unlikely Peter was in Rome, Peter being a Judean. It's highly unlikely that a prominent apostle such as Peter was preaching the gospel in Rome before Paul got there. Those who protest these assessments claim that Peter, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I already read that paragraph, also seeming to work against the idea that Peter was in Rome, founding Christian assemblies, is the chronology. And we're going to go over that now. Paul says in Galatians that he was in Damascus for three years after his conversion. His conversion probably followed the stoning of Stephen by about a year, but we'll assume that it's the same year that Stephen was stoned, that Paul was converted. It's hard to tell exactly from the text, right? But it was probably following Stephen's stoning by a year. Paul says that in, in the, the epistle to the Galatians that he was in Damascus for three years after his conversion. And then he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And again, 14 years after his conversion, or perhaps after the first visit, the text is ambiguous. Paul's explanation in Galatians is a little ambiguous. But we'll say that 14 years after his conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem again and Peter was still there. And these events that Paul is referencing in Galatians are recorded in Acts chapter 15. When Paul says that after 14 years he went up to Jerusalem, he means to reference the events described in Acts chapter 15. Now, the crucifixion was in 32 A.D. It can be told that the crucifixion was in 32 A.D. because the reliable Apostle Luke tells us that the ministry of Christ started in the 14th year of Tiberius Caesar, which had to be 28 A.D., or the 15th year. And being three and a half years in, in duration, we can see that the, the, the crucifixion was in 32 A.D. Therefore, Peter was still in Jerusalem three years, and, and the stoning of Stephen was close behind the crucifixion. And, and Peter was still in Jerusalem in 35 A.D., three years later. And Peter was still in Jerusalem in 46 A.D., 14 years later. But if Paul meant 14 years after his first visit, which is ambiguous, then Peter could have been in Jerusalem in 49 A.D., now, if Peter is still in Jerusalem in 46 A.D., there was the famous Edict of Claudius. 
The Edict of Claudius expelled all Christians and Judeans from Rome. And that Edict of Claudius was in effect from 49 A.D. to 54 A.D. at the death of Claudius when he died. When Claudius died, the edict expired. Paul was sent to bonds in Rome around 60 A.D. and got there around 61 A.D. And James is slain in Jerusalem a year or two later, probably in 62 A.D. Peter is never mentioned as being in Rome. Peter says he was in Babylon. And the assemblies of Rome are well-founded by this time. We know they're well-founded by this time. The proof of that being that Paul wrote the assemblies in Rome from Corinth shortly after the death of Claudius, between 56 and 58 A.D., and Peter is not mentioned in the long list of people which Paul greets. So Peter couldn't have been in Rome before 46 AD. He couldn't have been in Rome from 49 AD forward. He was in Babylon, I believe, shortly after Paul died, but it was certainly during Paul's imprisonment that Peter was in Babylon, writing his first epistle to the assemblies that Paul founded. Here's Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, which will help us also date these things. After these things, departing from Athens, meaning Paul's departing from Athens, he went to Corinth, and finding a certain Judean named Aquilus of Pontus by birth, having recently come from Italy, and Priscilla his wife, on account of Claudius ordering all of the Judeans to depart from Rome. He went with them, and because being in the same trade, he abode with them and they worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So we see the edict of Claudius in Acts chapter 18. That happened in 49 AD. That's consistent with the chronology that I place Acts chapter 15 in, in 46 AD. So I doubt that Peter was ever in Rome before the death of Paul on that complicated basis, right? But if you know your chronology and you know your history and you know your Bible, you won't be fooled by the Catholics, that's for sure. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For not following after cleverly devised myths have we made known to you the power and presence of our Prince Joshua Christ, but having been spectators of his majesty. Peter claims not to be passing along myths, but to be passing along what he has witnessed personally. John, likewise, opens his first epistle in the same manner, where he says, that which was from the beginning, I'm sorry, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have observed and our hands have touched concerning the word of life, that the life was made manifest and we have seen and we bear witness and we announce to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has been made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and we have heard, we also announce to you that you also would have fellowship with us. Yet now our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Joshua Christ, and we write these things in order that our joy would be fulfilled. Verse 17, For receiving from Father Yahweh the dignity and honor of so great a voice, having been produced for him by the magnificent effulgence, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice we have heard, having been produced from out of heaven, with him being on the holy mountain. Compared to the Gospels, on the surface anyway, there was an imperfection in the language here, which I am further inclined to believe shows that Peter indeed wrote this epistle. If one is merely a copyist, it may be supposed that one would strive to make an exact quotation of something. However, if one is simply giving an informal testimony, one may more likely be susceptible to giving minor differences in the way which one tells a story. That's only natural. In Mark 9-7, with the account of the transfiguration on the mount, which Peter refers to as given, all of the oldest and better copies of the manuscripts read, and I quote, and there was a cloud overshadowing them, and there was a voice from out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, you hear him. Only in one manuscript, the Codex Sinaiticus, a later emendation of the text contains the words, in whom I am well pleased, rather than you hear him. In Luke 9.35, where the same event is recorded, except for a couple of differences that do not affect the point of the issue here, all of the oldest and best manuscripts have Greek text, which I translate, and the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my chosen son, of him you listen, or you hear him, right? However, in Matthew, we have an interesting version where both clauses are present. And at Matthew 17, 5, it says this, Yet upon his speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You hear him. Except for a minor difference in the order of the last two words, the Greek of Matthew 17, 5 is the same in all of the manuscripts. Now, a similar event happened, a voice from a cloud and the utterance from heaven, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, when Christ was baptized in the Jordan. This is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the testimonies of what was said in that instance are rather consistent. However, here in the account of the transfiguration, it is evident that Matthew gives the fullest version. But that version given by Luke and Mark are not wrong, but simply for one reason or another, they are not as complete as that version given by Matthew. Years later, writing his epistle, it is apparent that a different, yet still incomplete, but not necessarily inaccurate, version of what was heard had stood out in Peter's mind. This, to me, is further proof that Peter wrote the epistle. Because this quote, or misquote, 
is consistent with fallible human recall and not with the actions of the copyist. Little things like that mean a lot, right? So verse 9, Peter here talks about the cleansing of old sins. That refers only to the children of Israel. As Paul said, Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. If you don't have the law, sin is not accounted to you. You don't need to be cleansed. Peter talks about the cleansing of old sins, which only refers to the children of Israel, to lost Israel. And then in verse 10, Peter talks about the calling and the election, also promised only to Israel. And then about the promises of an entrance into the eternal kingdom in verse 11. And then in verse 13, Peter talks about the putting off of the tabernacle, meaning this human fleshly body. And then he refers to the transfiguration on the mount in reference to those same promises. In other words, there's a common theme here in this chapter of Peter. In the transfiguration, we saw that Moses and Elijah had appeared before the apostles and were said to have spoken to Christ. Moses and Elijah, of course, had passed from this world long before these events. Paul also referred to the body which we have in this world as a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling for that spirit which we have from God, which is our true body. From 2 Corinthians, which is the real us. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, we have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we bemoan this, yearning to be clothed with our dwelling, which is from of heaven. If indeed, even being stripped, we shall not be found naked. The Shekinah glory that Wesley Swift liked to talk about. And indeed, we who are being burdened in the tabernacle, bemoan, since we wish not to be stripped, but to be clothed in order that the mortal would be consumed by life. In other words, this body is not our real life. Now he who has been cultivating for us this same thing is Yahweh, who has been giving to us the deposits of the Spirit. Therefore, always having courage and knowing that residing in the body we sojourn away from the prince, or the Lord. Indeed, we walk by faith, not by that which is seen. Now we have courage, and we are still more pleased to travel out of the body and to reside with the prince, or the Lord. On which account, we also strive eagerly, either residing at home or sojourning, in other words, home is the spiritual body, to be pleasing to him. And sojourning is the physical body. Peter called the recipients of his first epistle sojourners on several occasions. 
For we all must appear in front of the judgment seat of Christ in order that each should be provided for the things after the body from that which he has practiced, whether good or bad. Then knowing the R of the prince, we persuade men. Now to Yahweh we have been made known, but I also hope to have been made known in your consciences. So we see that the same belief in a conscious life after death, which Peter displayed in the third chapter of his first epistle, where we talked about the spirits in prison hearing the gospel, is also evident here. And it's also evident in the writings of Paul. That same belief was also expressed by the Greeks. For while last week, in the context of the spirits of prison, mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3, we discussed Hades, the underworld, the boat of the dead, hell, the netherworld. Yet here in this context, we can discuss Olympus and the Isles of the Blessed, said to be far off in the Western Sea. These are old Greek myths, right? The Greeks had the belief, as it was often expressed in the epic poetry and in some of the later writings, that not every departed soul went to dwell in Tartarus, but that some of the fortunate among the departed went to Olympus to dwell with the gods or to dwell in the Isles of the Blessed, as they are called in English. There was a similar myth among the Celts. And of the Celts, or the Galatahi, which is a Greek term which includes all Germans, writers such as Theodorus Siculus and Strabo said that they were fearless in battle. And they said that they were fearless in battle because they believed that even if they were killed, their spirits would never die. Thus we have it in the early Germanic literature, Valhalla, as well as Niflheim, a heaven as well as a hell. Again, our race has carried these stories since the dawn of time. And their realization in our Bibles should be a unifying factor among all whites, among all of the white Adamic people, as they were among the ancient Germanic warriors. And in battle, they certainly were. Since only our race has had such promises, it should well be a unifying factor. And indeed, we alone have them from God, as our Bibles attest. Verse 19, and we have a more certain word of prophecy, which you do well, holding to as a light shining in a squalid place, until which day it should dawn, and the light bearer should arise in your hearts. The true light bearer is Christ himself. And some verses from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Yahweh, and the Word was Yahweh. He was in the beginning with Yahweh. All things were through him, and without him was not even one thing. That which was done in him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shines in darkness, yet the darkness comprehends it not. The light is the truth, which coming into the society enlightens every man. He was in the society, and the society came to be through him, yet the society knew him not. And the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us, the spirit of Yahweh in the body of a man. And we beheld his splendor. Splendor is the most beloved by the Father, full of favor and truth. And from Revelation 22:16, I, Yahshua, have sent my messenger to attest these things to you for the assemblies, plural. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Ephesians 5:14, very similar to what Peter says here in 2 Peter 1:19, for everything being made manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awaken you who are sleeping, and rise up from among the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. Verse 20. Knowing this, that any prophecy of Scripture must not be a peculiar explanation. For not at any time has prophecy been produced by the will of man, but being produced by the Holy Spirit, men had spoken from Yahweh. Prophecy must not be a peculiar explanation. In other words, there are no legitimate, esoteric, so-called spiritual explanations of Scripture. There are no explanations of Scripture which are valid that defy the plain meanings of the words themselves. 1 Peter 1.25, in part, that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. In other words, its seed means children or offspring in the Old Testament. Then seed means children or offspring in the New Testament. Abraham's seed came from his loins. Israel is a nation which came from Rebekah's womb. At 2 Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 18 and 19, Paul stated, If I give thanks to Yahweh, speaking in more languages than all of you, but in the assembly I wish to speak five words with my mind in order that I may instruct others also than a myriad of words in a language. Five words with my mind I would rather speak, as Paul says, so that the people in the assembly could understand, and he would rather speak those than a thousand or ten thousand words in an unknown tongue, a tongue unknown to listeners. Instructing the assembly, Paul must have been using everyday language that his Greek listeners clearly understood. And I use this as an example. Therefore, when Paul said seed, he did not refer to any esoterical, spiritual hocus-pocus. Rather, he meant the word just as the Greeks used it. Burma only comes from one place. And the people, that only means to refer to one's own children, 
to one's own offspring. That is why Paul referred to Israel according to the flesh, real Israel, and not the imposter Edomite Jews, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he referred to the pagan nations of Europe. Paul said, Behold, Israel according to the flesh, the things that the nations sacrifice, meaning Israel according to the flesh, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. The Jews weren't running around sacrificing things to demons in the first century. They were only sacrificing according to the temple rituals. Paul was talking about Israel according to the flesh, the nations that descended from Abraham's seed, dispersed Israel, the European nations which came from the loins of Jacob and the womb of Sarah. Because sperma means seed, and it only comes from one place. If you believe in spiritual sperm, well, that's not the way the Greeks used the word. That's not the way Peter would have understood the word. That's not the way any Greek in the first century would have understood the word. That's a peculiar explanation of prophecy. Paul knew that the people of Corinth, the Corinthians, were descendants of the so-called lost tribes. He told them all our fathers were under the cloud. Paul knew where the so-called lost tribes were. He knew that they were the Scythians, the Galatians, as he told the Galatians that Christ only came to redeem those who were under the law. The Galatians were under the law until the Assyrian deportations as were the Scythians, the Trojan Romans, the Illyrians, all the people Paul went to were Israelites. The Dorian Greeks of Corinth, the Danning Greeks. Paul knew that they were all Israel according to the flesh. And the ancient history books and the archaeology all proved it. There were no private interpretations of Scripture. It's all in the books. Likewise, when Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 45, but Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Who could possibly imagine that some other Israel was meant, other than the literal physical children of Jacob, whom Isaiah was addressing? Any other interpretation is peculiar. It's peculiar because it evades the plain meaning of the word. As it has been said here before, the apostles did not quote the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel just because they sounded good or because they provided nice things to write. Rather, the apostles quoted those scriptures because the people they were writing to were fulfilling those very oracles in their return to Yahweh through God, their God through Christ. Those people that Peter and Paul were writing to and James, they were the pagan tribes of Europe who descended from the loins of Abraham, Jacob, and the womb of Sarah. They were Israel fulfilling prophecy. The Bible is not for Negroes. It's not for Orientals. There's no such thing as spiritual sperm. The law of God is kind after kind. 
And that does not change. As Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all writing inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education, which is in righteousness, that the man of Yahweh would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works. But it is only helpful if we know what the words mean. And we do not need priests and popes for that purpose. We believe the plain word of Scripture. Therefore, Christian identity is the only true Christianity. Everything else is a lie. Thank you for listening. I'll be here.